Shall I kick us off? Kick. Go for it. Hello and welcome. <laughs> in 40 years time when we do the BBC4 retrospective on Shark Liver Oil it's going to be called Hello and Weckle to Shark Liver Oil <laughs> we've got provisional worst ways to die list here wildfire buried alive under the wall having your eyeballs bitten out um, being cooked in your own armour. Did we have a fifth one as well? What was the other one? The King's Guard as well, who um, they couldn't find him because he was covered in so much blood. Oh, that was my chap, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That man, was yeah. Preston, Preston yeah. Greenfield, a poor bastard. That didn't sound much fun either. <laughs> That's true. This guy who shags weird priestesses so she'll give birth to shadow assassins and go and kill his brother. Is that sort of you chime with it? Pretty much, yeah. Hello and welcome to episode four of Shark Live Royal's coverage of A Storm of Swords by George R. R. Martin. I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. And we've got a special celebrity guest with us today. Introduce yourself, please. Yes, I'm Ollie. Hi. Mysterious Ollie, as he will now be known. <laughs> Mysterious Ollie. He's going to add to our, um, to our basic chat today. So this is running from page 331 to page 426. 426 is a chapter about Tyrion. Yeah, it's a chapter about Tyrion, which begins, Nothing remained beyond the King's Gate. So once you get to there, stop reading. That's the part we're doing today. Let's crack into it. We start off with this chapter about Bran. Um, and he's, he's on his way up to the wall uh, with Jojen and Mira. He's miserable and he's moaning. And he's basically being a sort of your typical child on the road, isn't he? <laughs> That's magnificent. I, for some reason, I hadn't noticed it, but he is, he, like, to his core. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Uh, have we avoided all the people trying to kill us yet? <laughs> like the most gothic road trip imaginable. Yeah, and, and he's going on about how, you know, he's saying, let's just go. If He's moaning about not going on the main road, on the King's Road. He says, you know, if we were going on the King's Road, we'd be there by now. And obviously the reason they're staying off that is to avoid... Avoid being detected, um, which isn't isn't a isn't a big surprise, I suppose. It's, it's remarkably specific complaint from a child in a, in, in a journey, isn't it? Usually, it's just like I don't know where we are. Can I have some chips? Can we stop? I want to get some sweets. I need the toilet. This one is. Look, if you'd only take the A thirty eight, it would be a lot quicker. It's like it's like Alan Partridge as an obstreperous nine year old. <laughs> Yeah, so they don't. I mean, it is working, isn't it? Being off the being off the main roads, they're not meeting anybody really, apart from this one guy who's in this little sort of cave. Um, is a I think is a flint, and it's really it's quite nice. It's, it's like just meeting a fellow traveller on the road, wasn't it? There's this common yeah. um, common sort of almost semi camaraderie between them. Yeah, and and it had a slightly less of the kind of disturbing zombie movie vibe than the chapter last time where Arya meets the um whoever it is the the Robin Hood and his merry men hmm. them peeps that one felt a little bit sort of zombie flick like who are these people and how are they going to shoot you this somehow Do- feels a little bit more kind of cozy isn't quite the word since it happens in a cave in a forest in a very cold climate but you know yeah. Do you think um, it's partly because it's just this area hasn't really been affected by war as much? Yeah, I suppose. You know, I mean, much in the same way as, like, the Shetland Islands never really suffered very much 
from from like the Wars of the Roses because <laughs> they're just so far out of the way that nobody's going to go up there and have a scrap. Yeah, and if yeah. you just bumped into somebody in that kind of remote place, you know, it's, it's the same as any other time. It just there, there is this feeling of looking out for each other because no one else is going to, are they? Yeah. Uh, this guy seems to have he's got word from the from the wall it looks like the, these ravens from the fist of the first man have actually made it back do you remember Sam sent a load of ravens off um, uh, yeah when, when the attack began but he didn't attach any messages to them and the uh, <laughs> yeah and, and the old the this this, this traveller says uh, the old bear took the watch into the haunted woods all that came back were his ravens with hardly a message between them dark wings dark words my mother used to say but when the birds fly silent it seems to me that's even darker and I think that's nicely uh, put isn't it very you true know, it's not really no news is good news is it can you imagine somebody trying to make that argument? Like, well, we sent this group of fighting men off into this uncharted wilderness, which we know to be inhabited by, at the very least, horribly savage people and possibly supernatural malevolence. And we haven't heard anything back. No news is good news, I always say. <laughs> and we also find out something about Hodor. Isn't that, it's not his name. He's actually called Walder, but he just everyone calls him Hodor because that's all he says. Mm. Did we know that before, though? I, I seem to remember that being a thing, like, way back in the first book. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking then, yeah, sorry to take the wind out of your sail. <laughs> I just, but, like, I, I thought back then it was, um, you know, why Hodor? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. this particular, why has he got this word in his consciousness and no other word? That begs the question, is like, you know, what was it that imprinted on him at such an early age that he wanted to talk about nothing else? Hmm. You know, imagine him saying, imagine him being so in love with food that he just went, chips, chips, <laughs> chips, 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 chips. <laughs> Did we um, say his name was Walder? Is that right? Yeah. 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 So is he the only Walder we've met so far who isn't one of the Freys? That's a good point. Yeah, I, don't, oh, I think yeah. it probably is. Yeah, you're on to something there. there like, so are we going with a possibly some sort of bastard Frey approach? Is Hodor the only likable Frey? <laughs> <laughs> now, the funny thing is, I think the checkered bit about Hodor's past, apparently, is he not supposed to have been related to old Nan, the old lady with the freaky stories from Winterfell? Yeah. yeah. And um, is this, there's some giants blood in him as well. I don't yeah. know how we get the Freys down south, sort of, comparatively to the north, into this as well. But it's mm. entirely possible, I suppose. Or there might be some connection, maybe, with old Nan with the Freys, and that's why she's named him a Walder. Uh, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Well, possible um, there's this nice story that uh, we hear from I think it's Mira or Jojen tell it about this Kranigman who travelled south to the Isle of Faces mm. um, it's just basically an adventure story but as we read on I think we come to realise that this is real this is I mean elements of this it's basically a, a story about a knight who um, um, this sort of mystery knight rides in the lists at this festival and helps out this poor little Kranigman guy. And there's, I think part of the tale is supposed to be that the Kranigman is the mystery knight in the end. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. And um, I really liked this, because just a little view into the into the Kranigman for a start, and all we've already seen is, that, is these two kids. Mira seems to be able to handle herself. Jojen's just fucking weird. Like he's he's the kid who gets gets taken out of class for looking at his looking at his classmates funny while stabbing motions with a pencil. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So like I don't really have a sense of what these people are like, and they're supposed to be almost kind of smaller, aren't they? They're supposed to be like they're like little people, like kind of 
you know, somewhere in between Tyrion Lannister and, you know, the people whose appearance isn't worthy of comment in Westeros. Mm. You know, they're sort of weird, sort of like three-quarter size people. He's making this journey, this little Kranigman, to go to the Isle of Faces, which is where the children of the forest used to live, because he's a bit of an explorer. But you'd imagine if you're sort of a bit of a pint-sized hero in this, in this world... You'd be immediately attracted to try and find other people who are similar to you, and maybe there's a connection between them. Because if you think the Kranigmen, thinking about it, there's more of a connection, isn't there? Because they're small, and some of them have also got these weird powers, which yeah. is what the children of the forest were known for. So, is there some kind of mingling of the blood here? Well, that would be pretty cool because you know the children of the forest were mentioned because this is this is a song of ice and fire, and George Martin has no problem whatsoever with making mentioning something two novels ago. And then just bringing mm. you back to it and being like, everybody remembers the Kranigman, right? And the Children of the Forest, Children of the Forest. Yeah, great, carry on. Mm. Um, so I kind of, that really intrigued me. Just, I forget when it was. I think it was in, in A Game of Thrones in the first one when he mentioned yeah. these kind of Children of the Forest and the, uh, you know, the island in the middle of the God's Eye and, and where did yeah. they go? And they, they originated this religion, which we're sort of, we're of the old gods. Mm. Um, and that's, that's, Kind of that's pretty weird because um, because you know we have this theory going that the old gods and the cold gods you know the others may be in mm. fact the same thing above the wall um, yeah but they were just sort of mentioned and left so I'm kind of interested like I was I really like this whole thing um, but I also really liked just getting a bit more of the recent history of Westeros you know this yeah. this this particular kind of battle. Um, in in this in this, in this yeah in this story so so there's two parts isn't it there's the Cranigman goes to the Isle of Faces. To have a look around, and there's also this fe- this 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 festival that happens, this tournament, and that's being held at Harrenhal, and this is where the connections really start to come together because it's held at Harrenhal, and there's this guy uh, called the Dragon Knight who is who sings this song which is so beautiful that everyone starts crying, um, and then this little Cranigman guy gets set upon by a lot of squires, and he's mm. saved by this girl, this this uh, really brave girl who's who's got three brothers um who are known as sort of wolves and she's a she-wolf uh, did, you, a, did you get the a, connection here no i'm quite dead <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh yeah that's what i only brought it in because i thought you were going yes <laughs> <laughs> no no i did but i i couldn't quite because clearly they're supposed to be starks right but i couldn't place at all where in the timeline it's it was supposed to be because yeah because three and one girl, am I right in thinking that would be um, that would be Ned and his sister and, and yeah. their two brothers, right? I think you're right. I think it's when there's this. Remember this this tournament, which I think Sabarison's spoken about, Daenerys, where yeah. uh, Jamie was. Um, I think Jamie did really well in the lists, and um, the uh, Dragon Knight, uh, which was Rhaegar Targaryen, you know, the prince, mm. uh, had. Uh, he he gave he sort of did this, know, this thing which honoured Lyanna Stark rather than his his wife, mm. and this is where the whole thing began, isn't it? The, the whole rebellion began. Yeah, and I think I think Lyanna is is the is the she wolf here, and then these three brothers. You've got the the wild wolf who led them, the quiet wolf beside him, and the pup who was the youngest. And I think the wild leader is. Brandon Stark, you know Ned's older brother, yeah, who yeah. ends up getting uh, getting killed in King's Landing, and yeah. then the quiet one is obviously Ned, and the youngest I assume is Benjamin. 
yeah, yeah. who ends up beyond the wall. Mm-hmm. So then you then that opens up a door for all these little parallels coming in, and it's it's both a, a story and a really sort of another way of looking back at these past events, isn't it? Yeah, and um, it really made me... Clearly this bit was quite important because all the way through it, you've got Mira telling the story and then you've got Jojen going, Bran, are you sure your dad never told you this story? And Mm. Bran's going, oh, no, 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 no. no." He just doesn't (laughs) see it at all. Um, But so clearly they thought it was important. And so, you you know, you kind of want to go back over it and pick over it and kind of bring out the good plot points and all of that. And... um, and I thought, yeah, I mean, I really, I'm a sucker for this stuff. Backstory, just flipping mm. brilliant. For me, perfect novel. One one chapter of current plot and then nine chapters of backstory. Fantastic. Yeah. Tell it all backwards. And it ends on a really sad note because it says, um, you know, that the story ends saying, you know, maybe they they speculate as to whether the knight was actually this little Kranigman who'd been transformed for a day by the power of the children of the forest. Mm. You know, when he went over to the island to mm. let him become a knight for a day and ride in the lists and and Bran ends up just thinking a day would be enough just for him as well because he's had these dreams of being a knight and obviously it's been taken away from him now mm. yeah 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 very true once again cripples bastards and broken things like it's a, it's a it's a novel that's on the side of the little guy whilst <laughs> doing horrible things to them yeah, what do you think about the direction they're going here and, and staying off the back roads and stuff? Is it is it is it a good call? And do you still agree with the idea of going up to the wall? Is that the safest course of action for them? Um, yeah, in that there's nowhere else in the entire country where you can't be certain they won't be captured and killed or ransomed or whatever. Like it makes sense. Mm. Um, so strategically, wonderful. As a reader, like I said little bit tired of the various Stark children just being dragged around the landscape to no discernible purpose. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Ollie, if you're leading that group, which, um, which way do you think you're going to... Where would you go? Would you go um, up to the wall or over to, I don't know, the various other castles around, aren't they? You could have gone to the Last Hearth, which is where the, the Great John's family are. Uh, maybe maybe the Karstark Castle to go and see them guys. Where would, are you happy with this idea of just chuck it all in and go up to the wall because there's some dreams of a crow up there? Well, the Great John sounds like a real laugh. So I'll probably go up for a party with him for <laughs> a bit. And then, um, yeah, see where it goes from there. Any more visions, then probably go up after a while. But yeah, have a bit of a party first. <laughs> well, yeah, you can always stop on the way for a, for a quick... A quick, quick uh, knees up, I suppose. It wouldn't be a quick um, knees up with the great John, though, would it? Like he's the kind of guy. If he's partying, then you're fucking partying with him, and you'll be there for months. <laughs> although, the, although the great, the great John's gone south to war, hasn't it? So is it still party time on the last Earth at the moment? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they're just sort of preparing for his grand return. Uh, that will be a hell of a party when they finally Rob finally leads the armies back up north, as we all hope will happen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, shall we move on, on to the next chapter? So next up is Davos, um, and he he's in a he's in a cell. He's in a, he's being held captive on Dragonstone, but he's he's being treated pretty well. You know, mm. he, he's he's being fed decent amounts of food. He's in a warm cell because the further the further below ground you go on Dragonstone, the hotter it gets because <laughs> there's sort of I think there's like I don't know underground volcanoes and stuff going on down there. Yeah. Um, this is the and mother the, of all bad building choices, isn't it? Where should we build it? Well, the ground here seems to be quite hot and explodey. Yeah, let's do it here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Malisandra comes down to speak to him. 
And she basically says, I, I knew that you were going to try to kill me. I saw it in the flames. And mm. you're wasting your time. You should join me because I'm on the side of right. And she basically sets up this whole thing where she says that it's basically, this is all about a fight between Rollo, which is the, the red god, and mm. the others, which are the, obviously the opposite. Mm. And she's obviously on the, the side of the good side. So for all the things she's doing, which we aren't happy with, she's doing it for the right reasons. Did you buy this? No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I like, you know, she's... I I get that she's very convinced that she's doing the right thing, which I suppose makes her slightly more sympathetic in that Mm. she doesn't think she's being a horrible person. She thinks she's doing the right thing. But you do still have to think... Like, what on earth is the matter with you that you think this is all the right thing to do? Mm. You know, at least, at least, like I've said before, you know, at least the Lannisters, even the Lannisters, have a sort of basic honesty of purpose. <laughs> They're not pretending to be anything other than venal, power-hungry maniacs. Mm. You know, and they just pursue that. She's the only person in this whole thing going, but listen, this this merciless slaughter of everybody, including children, is the right thing to do. And I think we all agree <laughs> on that. You know, she's the person you put on one of the far wings on Question Time. You know what I mean? That, that's... Um, so, so, so what's this massive slaughter of children that she's done? Um, there's been kids, haven't there? <laughs> yeah, but they're having all like in wars, haven't they? Yeah, I'm just I wondering. That's true. But that's my point: is that like I mean, I said, all right, massive snore of children, nonsense. But like, Stannis hasn't been noticeably more moral than anybody else. But he's the yeah. only one kind of acting in this way because he thinks it's the right thing to do. And at that point, mm. you've got to ask questions about that as a moral system, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, if if I if, if I try and put the cause for sort of the case for her here, you would say I would say that. You know, the, we've seen that these these others are on the way south, and mm. they're going to kill anyone they can get their hands on. Mm. And basically, she's saying we're gonna we're having to do some pretty ropey things, mm. but we're basically by any means necessary need to get the force together to be able to stop this from happening. Is and, she really? You know, is she really saying? Does she really know that, or is she just sort of like always assuming, like kind of like? You know, you can you can justify anything because otherwise the terrorists will win. You know, yeah. does she actually think they exist, or is she just like, oh yeah, bad things, cold things, because we're yeah. hot, so they're cold and they're bad. They're cold. I suppose may- maybe I'm jumping a little bit here because because she just mentions the other. I mean, mm. I've made a con- I've, I'm kind of making a connection, which I suppose she isn't explicitly doing. So maybe I'm tr- maybe I'm giving her too much credit there. Ollie, what do you, what do you think? Well, I think she comes in into it from a bit of a different position. She's sort of. Very much, she believes in what she's doing, no matter sort of the sort of moral ambiguities at best of what's been going on there. Um, but I think it's quite interesting that they're coming in from this angle of the Red God and this different religion systems that you've seen with the Starks and the um, and the Lannisters as well. Uh, I quite like, um, actually, quite like Stannis and the whole Red Woman thing, and I'm. A lot more so than Dave, kind of rooting for Stannis a little bit because mm. I'm a Stannis fan. I am a little bit because he just, I just quite like how he sort of really represents the place where he's from because he's from a really boring and miserable place, and he really comes across in that way as well. <laughs> <laughs> and being from the northwest of England, I kind of I can feel that a little bit as well. <laughs> 
<laughs> so are you saying that that being from Lancashire really gives you a sense of like common purpose with this guy who shags weird priestesses so she'll give birth to shadow assassins and go and kill his brother? Is that sort of you chime with it? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, right, all right, all right, right on. Again, so, so, honesty of purpose, you see, I respect that. <laughs> Someone who isn't quite chiming with the red woman, as far as it goes, is Davos. He's still not... I mean, he, he's desperate for her to leave this torch. He's basically one torch allowing him to see, and if this torch is taken away, he's alone in the dark with the rats, which no one would want. So he's he's desperate for her to leave this, and she does, but he pretty much says, you know, uh, she, he, he doesn't go so far as to say, I'm going to throw my, my lot in with you, release me, you know. Mm. Um, another person who isn't mad keen on the Red Woman, to say the least, is a guy called, um, is it Alistair, Flo- it's Alistair Florence, who's the, he's actually the hand of, of Stannis' hand, if you like, so he's the hand of the king for Stannis. Mm. And it turns out he, he's a beaten man, isn't he, after the Blackwater, Mm. And he uh, has been has been kind of secretly suing for peace with the Lannisters because mm. he thinks it's the only way out. Mm. And the you know Stannis and the Red Woman have found out, and he's ended up in a cell as well now. Oh, it's probably just worth pointing out. This is different to the series because in the series, Stannis is made hand of the king, isn't he? Like straight away. Yeah, yeah. This this, this doesn't happen in the book. At least it hasn't happened yet. In case Hang on, sorry, Stannis is made hand of the king. Sorry, not Stannis. Davos is made. So Stannis, in in the series, by this point, Stannis has had to sit down with Davos and said, um, I'm going to make you my hand, you know, my hand. I think he does it just before Blackwater. He doesn't do that in the book. And this is why you've got this Alistair Florent character. Yeah, is the uh, irony of him being the hand and not having a full set of fingers lost on Stannis or not, do you think? Do you think he's got <laughs> sort of a very sharp sense of humour? Do you think he gets that? <laughs> you mean he sort of like leans over the table in the TV series and he's like kind of, Davos, I'd like you to be my hand. <laughs> I think he says it in his little, little nodding look to the Red Woman. <laughs> well, there's, there's, there's a brilliant bit in the, in the series with Bruce Bolton and, uh, and Jamie Lannister where obviously Jamie's lost his hand and he's sitting down with Roose Bolton and um, <laughs> and Roose Bolton says, you don't want to overplay your... And then he stops, he looks at him and goes, position. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, we're getting a bit off topic, aren't we? <laughs> Just a bit. So yeah, there's, there's, there's this offer of peace terms, which... Um, uh, obviously he's infuriated the Red Woman and Stannis because it's seen as treason and in the end um, Alistair Florent just starts weeping in the cell um, and you just really get the sense of as I said a, a, just a completely broken man don't you? Yeah and i tell you what this really made me think of again is the sort of the way it made me think of like like communist dictatorships and police states where like you can be the guy on top but you're not safe no, literally nobody is safe when you're in this atmosphere of suspicion and kind of violence Mm. Um, so unless you're the red woman, I suppose. Um, yeah, you know. So, so he he's the one who, in the last chapter, was the was the gatekeeper and was keeping Davos out and saying, "No, you're not going to see him. Go and lock him up." And then in this chapter, here he is locked up right next to him. Yeah, and it's, you know, like he's rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall all the way through. I, I, I think there are actually two. Florent. This is this is one of the confusing things here. You've got Alistair Florent, who's the hand. And you've mm. got Axel Florence, who I think is kind of the captain of the guard, and he's he's one of the people, oh. one of the Red Woman's creatures, 
And I think oh, he was right. the guy who threw Davos in the cell. So oh, there, there were right. two okay. different characters there. But I think you're still right. This guy has in, been in such a high position as Hand of the King and he's now suddenly found himself in a dungeon. Yeah. All right. Well, well I'm wrong. Thank you for calling me on that. Um, no, you're but, still right, but it's just worth making the distinction. Yeah, 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 true. Yeah, and it, and it is it is brutal, isn't it? You know, just, just sort of like, you're the hand of the king, you're in the cells. Why? Because I said so. Frightening. <laughs> Frightening. Uh, okay, shall we move on to the next chapter? Yes. Let's go. It's, uh, it's John, and he's parting with Ghost. This is something I hadn't thought about until I read it, but um, obviously John's going to climb the wall, and as great, as cool as direwolves are, they can't climb, um, <laughs> you know, hundreds of feet of ice. So mm. he's, he's, having to, he's having to send Ghost away. And he basically tells him to go to Castle Black and he wonders if Ghost can understand him. Um, <laughs> a, bit of a bit of a sad parting, this, isn't it? It is. And these, these wolves, they don't get any closer to the people they're supposed to be looking after, do they? You know, now you've got Nymeria lost for a book and a half in the neck. And, um, and Lady has been killed. Who the fuck knows where Shaggy Dog and um, and what's the other one? Summer have gone, mm. um, and now Ghost. Sad, sad. I'm surprised at how close a bond I feel to these. Since they're to, in my head, they're just pet dogs. They might be big pet dogs, but they're just pet dogs. <laughs> I'm surprised how much I'm like sort of. Oh, don't go! Don't no no. It'll be great. Don't go without you. It'll be rubbish. <laughs> Um, Ollie, do you think this is a big moment? Because we've had this narrative of how um, the wolves are almost protectors of these different children, and Catelyn very much buys into this south. She's saying to Rob, always keep your direwolf by you because it's really important for your safety. Um, what did you make of this? Do you think this is a big moment? I think it's really interesting with the direwolves because... In one respect, yeah, it's this, they're these great protectors and there's this real bond that they seem to have with the Stark children of how they're going to look after them. But in another sense, everything seems to have shaken up for the Stark children since they've got these wolves. And they're almost a curse in a sense in that since they've found these wolves, I mean, there's been a war's broken out, they've all dispersed into different places, not so nice things have happened to... I mean, obviously, going up north of the wall is obviously quite a difficult thing for... Um, for John to be doing mm. and then obviously I was off trudging around the wilderness and whatnot. Mm. so I mean you could almost see that the point of up until then it seems like they had a relatively sort of happy childhood for the Stark children mm. and then these wolves come along have this great bond and then things have started to go a little bit sort of downhill in that respect since then it's a good point I, I suppose the counter to that is um, Sansa's wolf lady has been killed and the curse hasn't exactly been lifted from her has it? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not <laughs> but uh, interesting theory Dave your thoughts um, I'd never thought of the uh, of the hounds being a sort of curse before like I find that I find that quite um, quite striking because you know you, you, you tend to think of them as being like the smoke alarm Mm. Um, uh, for the for the Stark kids, but um, but yeah, maybe, maybe in a roundabout way they are, you know, they are sort of part of the problem. Mm. So, so also, oh, sorry, sorry, you go. Maybe with um, they, I always have thought of the Starks when you see it as real sort of almost like you see the Mace, they're very rationalists and they're sort of the people of the North. They're very the as you see what you see is what you get sort of with the Starks and. I imagine them to fare a lot better in a world without magic than a world where magic is happening because mm. I think that's something that particularly Ned, I don't think he'd have had a lot of time for because he's quite up for the sort of the battle and the fight and honour and all of those things. Mm. Yeah. But once it starts getting a bit mystical and magical, yeah, I don't, 
I, I see that as something that the Starks might find difficult and I don't know maybe that's something that comes into it as well yeah I suppose Ned is Ned's very was very religious wasn't he but um, up to it I mean, he wasn't insofar as you know dabbling with necromancy or mm. and his his <laughs> yeah. maester his maester Lewin was uh, obviously very sceptical of magic as well wasn't he so it did feel like quite a even though it was religious quite a sceptical yeah. um, sceptical group yeah yeah um, which aren't you know mutually exclusive. Uh, next up, uh, well, let's let's t- talk a bit about what's going to happen next. They, they, they're going to have to climb this massive wall. One of the there are two leaders. One's called Stir, who's the Magna of Then, and one's called Jarl, uh, who's this young up and coming guy who's climbed the wall loads of times before and is going to lead everybody up. All the wild the wildlings are worried about patrols along the wall because obviously, no matter how good you are at climbing this, was it five hundred six hundred feet of ice? While you're doing it, it's going to take a while and you're very exposed as you're doing it. So they're mm. worried about Night's Watch patrols coming along and catching them. Um, there's a great story. It's always, it's always story time when you're north of the wall, it feels. But um, yeah. there are these really good stories. Um, one is this guy called Arson Ice Axe who tried to tunnel uh, through the wall. And um, as he was sort of trying to do it, a, a group of rangers came across him and instead of sort of going in after him they just sealed up the wall and there's the, the legend is you can still hear him tap tap tapping away under the wall gruesome but great story isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah it really is and you can see it and like the worst thing for me was the thing i could visualize the best was a bunch of night's watchmen walking past walking past a hole sort of noticing it doubling back <laughs> standing over it totally silently and just being like Shall we? Yeah. <laughs> Piling up rocks and walking away from it, flicking the Vs. You know, you just see him doing it. And where was that? Would that rank so far then on your sort of worst ways to die in Westeros? Oh, God. Oh. Is that going to go? Because, I mean, being buried alive has always been one of my great fears. But, yeah. I mean, there have been 101 horrible ways to die so far so do you think where do you think this might come sort of <laughs> middle top end or is this sort of relegation zone like fodder oh, Dave I'll throw that one to you oh man I think that's a fantastic list to inaugurate um, <laughs> yeah. I mean terrifying because how many how many awful ways are there to die a lot I mean yeah. you could just off the top of my head um, you, <laughs> could, you could go for a bath in wildfire couldn't you and yeah. burn no matter where you were underwater doesn't matter um, yeah. You could go to the house of the undying and have uh, a semi-real ghost chew out your eyes. That would be a horrible, fairly, fairly horrible way to go. Um, later on in this chapter, actually, there's a bit where there's a load of guys who've been put in cages to to basically be eaten by anything that fancies a bit oh, of a nibble. Oh yeah, oh. Yeah. That's so, and and you know, and this. But you're right. There is something about being buried alive under 700 foot tall wall of ice. That's whatever it is thick at the bottom as well. Because mm. you've got it mostly because you'd have to really psych yourself up to it, wouldn't you, to go in there in the first place? And yeah. then it happens, and it would just be like, oh no, like horrible, horrible. At the same time, surely you think, well, if if you get blocked in the other end, you think, well. You know, I came in to do a job, and the job has it's, it's like in Champions League where you can see the goal when you're at home. <laughs> the job doesn't change effectively, does it? You're still going to get through there. So I'd imagine you'd have died anyway, uh, stuck in the dice. 
Or maybe, yeah, yeah he get he. I suppose it, it'd be he'd get to a point, be be really cold, and give up and think I've just got to get out, and then suddenly realise that his exit is also blocked. Yeah, it's a horrible way to go. The other one I was going to put forward, horrible ways to go, would be um, Ned's dad who, if you remember, oh, yeah. the, the Mad King basically cooked him in his armour over an open fire, um, which, yeah, again, must be a horrendous way to go. Yeah, it's they're sort of pole of opposites, aren't they? Because you've <laughs> yeah. got like, the hot and cold, sort of thing. Yeah. and fire, maybe. Both. Well, hey! <laughs> <laughs> Ding. Oh, okay, so we've got provisional worst ways to die list here. Wildfire, um, buried alive under the wall, having your eyeballs bitten out, um, being cooked in your own armour. Did we have a fifth one as well? What was the other one? Um, I, th- I think that's all I've managed to think of so far. Cause the it, grim one? <clears throat> oh, oh, I don't know. Um, uh, being how torn about, about, limb uh, from limb by Rorge and Biter. Well, I was going to say torn limb from limb by a bear. Do you remember Amory Locke, who oh, ended up getting yeah. chucked into the bear pit? I reckon oh, we can probably yeah. stick that one in. Yeah. Um, should we just keep them as in no particular order but have our top five uh, worst ways to die in Westeros worst ways to die in Westeros the King's Guard as well who um, was it when he was protecting Joffrey recently when he was they couldn't find him because he was covered in so much blood oh that was my chap yeah Yeah, yeah, that was Preston Preston Greenfield poor bastard that didn't sound much fun either (laughs) (laughs) that's true as ways to die go yeah that's it actually isn't it like being so horribly torn apart by a mob that your remains are unidentifiable (laughs) <laughs> yeah, grim. Okay, well, um, look, sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com is the email address. If you've got a worse way to die in Westeros, then we're all ears. But um, yeah, the, the top five is being created, and it will take some um, horrific effort to, to get in there and break into that. Every time we come across a really bad one, we'll see if we can, we can find a place to put it in our top five worst ways to die in Westeros. Um <laughs> The, ne- the only other bit of this, from, from the really terrible to the really great, for John anyway, um, we, we revisit, we get a new version of Hot Springs House. Do you remember the, everyone's favourite uh, spring break castle, which is basically Winterfell has these hot springs which keep, uh, keep everything warm in the middle of winter. Oh, we yeah. found this cave with hot springs everywhere. And <laughs> spectacularly and- none of the other wildlings have gone down there <laughs> so it's just John and Egret so they've got the place to themselves I mean that'd be the first place I'd go but anyway well no um, I, th- I think what it was though is that everybody knows there's a kick-ass sound system down there and it's uh, <laughs> they've, they've just got let's get it on playing on loop and it's, it's, the, it's the oral equivalent of hanging a sock on the doorknob isn't it? just don't, don't, don't come in here <laughs> uh, speaking of oral um, hey! John, <laughs> uh, so John um, manages to discover a new trick which he never knew he had. Um, he, he so he goes down an egret, and she describes this as the Lord's kiss, <laughs> and um, and she can't believe a look uh, because no one does this north of the wall apparently. Um, it's a so, touching I scene, mean, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's, it is a really nice. It is. It's a, it's a really nice scene, and it ends um, quite quite almost almost melancholic in how she says I never want to leave this cave and you feel that they are both really happy and together here mm. um, but that outside of the cave there are these bigger forces which are going to make it very difficult for this relationship to to continue because if you think John's being pulled in completely opposite direction and Egret the same with, with their place in this world mm. and I don't know I just didn't feel 
particularly good after this chapter because it didn't when she said i never want to leave this cave it didn't feel like just a a throwaway line between two happy comfortable and stable lovers it felt like a real sort of sad plea i think i think that's really true um and I think it it was so important this because it's another piece of taking the wildlings from being just sort of wild, untamable, sort of awful presences to being well-rounded human beings. You know, like we've seen it before with everybody crying after the song about the giants, and then this is another thing where you're like, you really feel their experience, and you really kind of feel you, particularly mm. eager here. You really sort of feel her pain because on the one hand, she's this incredibly tough you know, totally handles herself, has no problem having sex with her man underneath what's basically a big fur coat. Like, that's, you know, like, that's no, um, that's no softy. But in this moment, still, she's like, uh, you know, this is, there are so, I can't cope with what's about to happen. Mm. Um, Because she knows, you know. Yeah. Uh, Okay, next up, uh, Daenerys. She's, she's on the hunt. She's shopping for Unsullied. (laughs) Uh, which are these, uh, obviously we said before, um, we've, we've been introduced to these last time, haven't we? Um, this this mm. super professional army which have been created in the most horrendous of circumstances. Yeah. Daenerys is going to trade a dragon for her and Sullid. Oh, no, you didn't. Feels, yeah. And uh, she's getting uh, Miss Endy, the, the, transla- the poor little translator who's been having to turn the insults which this slave owner has been saying about Daenerys into you know, fairly polite bargaining positions, um, which she did a good job of. So the nurse are probably quite happy to take her. Um, I don't know if this is at all important, but in the series, Daenerys actually claims her and sort of buys her and says, I want her as part of the bargain. And in the book, the slave owner just basically gives her away because he's he's got no use for her. Mm. Um, I don't know. I suppose it was a bit, it's just a bit about power, isn't it? And showing Daenerys in a less weak position than she looks in the book at this stage. Uh, Yeah, that's true. And I I think that's important because actually the point of this moment this chapter is that Daenerys becomes very powerful, um, mm. but um, but I still I quite liked it because it makes the guy selling the slaves bolsters his reputation as an utter twat, and so <laughs> and so you know you feel you know there's even more Schadenfreude in it when he finally well when the end mm. of the chapter comes. Yeah, she's she's selling everything to get this army, even her ships. Uh, yeah. Which her captain Grolio is um, is really pissed off about, obviously, because they were they, these ships and stuff. They're not hers. They've been lent to her by Ilrio over in Pentos, so she can go over to him. And mm. she's obviously deciding to do her own thing here, um, which is an interesting move. She's very conflicted about it and ha- ha- spends this night really, uh, you know, unsure of what to do and feeling like she's making a mistake. And there's this little little moment on deck when she can't sleep and Sejora's up as well because apparently he can sense her moods because he's that close to her now mm. and um, he just touches her hair and she feels that's just sort of enough and it's enough comfort for her mm. and it's just again just a sense of how complicated this relationship is between them because she also thinks back to that moment when he kissed her last time and thinks that was a mistake and she doesn't want you know she, that's not something she wants from him mm. but at the same time there's, it's not as black and white is it no, 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 not at all. No, I mean, it's... Um, I want to describe it as being shades of grey, but that now has connotations which I'm uncomfortable applying to this particular context. 
it's it's morally ambiguous and complicated. Do you think do you think she she needs him more as, as a as a father figure, and and he needs her more as a as a as a partner and as a wife, and and that's that's where the problem is between them. So that even though they're very close, they both kind of need different things out of this relationship. Um. Yeah. Yeah. No. Actually, I think that's very true. Um, and um, but then again, you know, kind of events can change. There's sort of that um, uh, that asymmetry can change as kind of different things come down the pipe. And I think there's things in their characters that mean, you know, that it could be quite interesting to see what happens. You know, hmm. Ollie, where do you stand on Sajora and Daenerys? Oh, I, I find Sajora incredibly creepy. <laughs> it absolutely makes my skin crawl when he comes on the page. There's just. Um, just with the knowledge of sort of what the age differential sort of is in the book with sort of the loose sort of clues that you get throughout it, it just seems really, really creepy. Mm. And he sort of seems to be in this position where he's very sort of, obviously he's a strong knight and he's a great fighter and he's a real sort of a man's man. And then mm. all of a sudden from there, he's sort of almost predatory, he seems, in it. And I don't know, it's, mm. <laughs> I just yeah. find him really uncomfortable, actually. Yeah. And um, with the sort of the loose knowledge of his slaving past and all this sort of thing I don't know I think there's he's written in quite a positive way quite a lot of the times but I think I sort of sense a bit of a dark sort of side to him or something there's something that I just don't trust about him and also the fact that Ned didn't like him I think that sort of mm. puts oh, something yeah. up against him where I think yeah there's something a bit shady about this guy yeah yeah uh, <laughs> the other thing about this part is in the middle of the night when Daenerys is trying to sleep she gets visited by I think it's Quaith um, this weird woman who was knocking about over him um, you know when over I think it's over in Carth mm. and uh, she says this prophecy this, I mean I've put I've, in my notes I've just put bullshit prophecy um, <laughs> which <laughs> which I mean it's, it's basically this it's uh, let me see if I can find it uh is Remember, it? to to go north, you must journey south. To reach the west, you must go east. To go forward, you must go back. To touch the light, you must pass beneath the shadow. Uh, I don't know. I just I don't have any patience for this kind of stuff. Uh, Dave, what do you think? Um, um, well, yeah. I mean, I think George Martin uh, kind of guzzled himself on this sort of faux plot nonsense at the end of the last one in the in the House of the Undying again, where it was just like whatever it was, 40 pages of extremely oblique, freaky, acid-trip plot hints. <laughs> and and this is this is a kind of creepy horror version, horror movie remix of it, isn't it? Because, it's, you know, somebody walks into a cabin and stands over and says all of this stuff. Mm. And if I was Daenerys, honestly, as well as being a bit shit up by it, I would probably, I would just jump up and grab her by the lapels or whatever she's wearing. <laughs> I love that she was wearing the lapels. She's wearing the lapels. She's wearing a three-piece suit. <laughs> it's chilly down there, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Just grab her and be like, listen, I get that you're trying to freak me out and I'm, I'm with that. I'm a character in a book, but for fuck's sake, I can't take any more of this oblique plot <laughs> referencing. Stop it. Where am I supposed to go? <laughs> I, I um, kind of got the impression of the author of the prophecy as someone who sort of I imagine was a sixth farmer first, first philosophy class trying to impress the teacher <laughs> sit down back table scribbling it away what goes north must go south all this sort of thing sit back in the chair relax and just sort of wait until the teacher comes round to just read it over the shoulder and go <laughs> yeah 
that's what I'm capable of. <laughs> really proud of themselves. So basically, it's bullshit, isn't it? Like you say. <laughs> yeah, because it because it, it, it is so um, it is so oblique. This is it, it, it just it is meaningless, isn't it? It seems um, it's one of those things that it's one of those kind of things that psychics say, so mm. that no matter whatever happens, you can find a way of it being a, a correct prophecy. Ollie, mm-hmm. do you? Yeah, she's like the Derek Akora of. Um, Sort of Westeros, isn't she? She's got a spirit guy talking to her and all these sorts of things. It's, yeah, she just comes across as absolute garbage. <laughs> do, 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 you, do you think this is our um, reading of it, or is it is is George Martin actually trying to to put something genuine in here and it's just not working, or do you think she is this just almost comic relief fraudster, Dave? Um. I would be surprised if she was a comic relief fraudster because George Martin's pretty good at comic relief. Hmm. Um, but um, and this is funny, but it's it's funny like like Plan Nine from Outer Space. Funny, you ever seen that? It's supposed to be one of like one of the worst films ever made, famously, you know. And it's this. It's just got all sorts of plot holes and mistakes and problems. Of course, this is nowhere near as bad as that. But it is a moment where I think you're supposed to be creeped out by it. But what yeah. you actually end up going is, to be honest with you, halfway through this scene, I, I was rolling my eyes. That that was yeah. my that was my physical response to this apparently very tense scene. Was just like, oh for yeah. fuck's sake, George. You know, I think I think she, I think she might be my least favorite character in all of Westeros, a most hated character, <laughs> most because, hated character. Yeah, because because she <laughs> doesn't give me and, <laughs> no, no, because I think Cersei's interesting, um, right? And and she does things which I, I wonder how she's going to react to things and do things. Um, after I was introduced to this character, Quaithe, from then on, I, for a start, I don't know how to say a name. Is it Quaithe or Quaithe? And and secondly, she's. I just don't know what she brings to the party other than me waiting to get past whatever she's saying so we can get on with the actual story. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. i tell you what it reminds me of is um, uh, there's a phrase I, I, it's from some movie script. I think it's from Go. Uh, somebody describes something that's... You, you see it appear in a scene and they're not going to do anything to the end and the whole time they're there just standing there waiting to suck. Is that kind of... <laughs> is that how you feel? <laughs> about this character I think that's pretty much yeah um, <clears throat> the next day we're, um, we're off to, to buy ourselves an unslid army with Daenerys um, just in case you, you, weren't, you, you needed reminding just how shitty a place Astapor is she walks down what's called the walk of punishment which is where slaves are um, sort of tied up and having bits of skin peeled off them for punishments um, for, for such great crimes as raising a hand against your master hmm. um, I think this this is useful just to make sure everybody's on board with this this city getting sacked before it gets sacked isn't it yeah yeah um, the so this deal goes down and Daenerys gives her dragon to gives one of her dragons Drogo gives that dragon to the slave owner gets the slave owner's whip which basically means she controls the unsullied which is thousands of these guys and then she gives once she knows the deal's done she gives the slave owner an, an absolute crack across the face with the whip um, and then shouts Dracaris which as we've seen earlier means fire and no, means shit him right up <laughs> yeah and then and that's when all hell breaks loose and the whole plan has basically been to buy this army and then sack the city so all the slaves are free 
Ollie. Yeah, I think the, the main lesson in this, isn't it, is that if you're the owner of a really powerful army and you're not the nicest bloke, the one thing to do isn't sell your entire army in one go because it's not really going to work out for you, is it? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like the most short-sighted sort of business plan of all time. <laughs> it's like going up to the school bully and saying to him, oh, yeah, yeah, um, I'll sell you this, whatever. You can buy, buy my pen for a five. He's just going to beat you up and take the money anyway again, isn't he? Once he's got the strength <laughs> off, once the teacher's gone round the corner. It's all, <laughs> it seems like one of the just really, one of the most <clears throat> stupid decisions we've seen so far. And I mean, there's been characters that have made questionable decisions but this guy he looks like he's up there on the uh, in the top five list doesn't he <laughs> <laughs> idiots of Westeros well, in the next list in terms of top five deaths uh, you know incinerated by dragon might might actually be have a case for getting in there <laughs> yeah but um, I have a sense that's not going to become a rare occurrence over the next several true. books yeah I don't, don't know what would hurt him more either he's got the um, the pain of being incinerated by this dragon and then just that moment as well where he's just going, I can't believe I did that. He's absolutely <laughs> kicking himself. I don't want to hurt him more. <laughs> okay, D- Dave, any, any words of defence for this slave owner who's made this deal? No. Is there any way this could have worked out for him? Of course there isn't, no. Like, he's just <laughs> massively underestimated the entire situation, <clears throat> Daenerys particularly. And you're absolutely right, Ollie. You can, you can just see that, that moment, that white-hot moment before he turns into so much... <laughs> malevolent gas is just yeah. I instantly regret this <laughs> uh, this was a really great scene this was a really great passage great chapter really enjoyed it it was a fantastic scene on the TV as well mm. um, there's, there's one thing that I want to nitpick about it and it is a bit nitpicking but um, when Daenerys is giving out her instructions to the Unsullied she says slay the masters and all this and one of the instructions in amongst it all is harm no child under 12 and how is that going to happen? How, in what way? I mean, they've got birth certificates, are they, are they unsullied, so they're checking out, how are they, are they counting the rings on the, I don't know, how do you do it? What's the, that seems such a weird thing to say. I know, obviously, she doesn't want kids to be killed, mm. but I, it just really struck me as an odd thing. I'm no child under 12. If they're 13, that's fine. Kill them. 11, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the work experience kids are having an absolute mare, aren't they? Until she said that. She's sitting there going, don't kill us, don't kill us. Under 12. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that'd be my first line. I'd be like, I'm just a really tall 12 yeah. year old. <laughs> Puberty's getting earlier these days. If you're not reading that. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, I mean, that's. It looks like Daenerys has got her army. She's on the way back. Finally, we're going to get a bit of. A bit of a clash of these of these big armies, maybe I don't know. Yeah, next so, up, King's Landing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's, <laughs> Ollie, so. Ollie, Ollie. Once you've been on this a little while, you'll learn never to expect a battle that you really hope for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, are we, we're going on to a chapter about Sansa. Do you remember the last time we did Sansa? Oh, a while back, it was Sansa gets a new dress. She is suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> She's, she's now getting fitted for this dress. She's all excited about how she's going to end up marrying Sir Willis Tyrell, the heir to Highgarden, one of the most powerful lords in the kingdom, in what seems like an almost fairy tale of a place, Highgarden. She's still in King's Landing at the moment, and this is where the problem is, because there's a different wedding planned. And I've just written, shit. <laughs> um, she's going to marry Tyrion instead, as, as we saw was being planned. And unsurprisingly she is devastated um, what a turnaround for Sansa the poor girl yeah although although I would 
Just you put, put that out there. I'd marry Tyrion Lannister. That's all right. <laughs> I thought you were sort of putting yourself forward as an impossible alternative to Tyrion. <laughs> it's like, hey, Sansa, have you noticed I have an intact nose? Hey, hey. Yeah. Um, I suppose there are worse Lannisters to marry, aren't there? At least he's not marrying Joffrey, who incidentally is uh, is giving her away just when it couldn't get any worse. Oh. Seen, seen as he killed her dad, he's got to be the guy who's <coughs> giving her away. Yeah, um, he loves twisting the knife as well. At some point, he he tells her he's going to um, he's still going to rape her as well. So just to just to you know drive the knife in a bit more for her. She really is just just the character just gets dumped on every chapter, isn't she? Mm-hmm. She's not terribly smart though, is she? Like there's a moment during this where she realizes that Sedontos was right all along, and this is what they had planned and stuff. And y- you would have thought, wouldn't you, that she wouldn't trust the people that she's been put, you know, under lock and key with these these Terrell kids and all of this people. Like, like mm. this is the, this was the first place where I really thought that Sansa was as stupid as um, uh, as the was it the Rose Queen, whoever it is, the old lady, Queen of Thorns, Queen of Thorns, the acerbic um, old lady from Highgarden. You know, describes her as being a bit thick, mm. and she's absolutely right. I mean, she wasn't betrayed by the Tyrells. I mean, it, the Tyrells have just been outmaneuvered here by the Lannisters. So the plan yeah. was always to get her out. It's just they haven't managed to do it because Tywin Lannister's too quick for them and too too sly for them, if you like. And I thought, yeah, this is this. There is this realization. You're right, though, where she thinks I should have. I should have. I should have thrown a lot in with Dantos. What did you make of it, Ollie? I'm, I think it seemed like they were a little bit slower, uh, the Tyrells, in terms of there seems to have been a lot of time between sort of the thing about um, Marjorie and Joffrey being betrothed and then Sansa sort of floating around and meeting up with a few of the Tyrells, having this dress fit. It, seemed, it felt to me like it was a longer time. Maybe it was an actual shorter time in sort of actual terms than it seemed. But it seemed to me when I was reading it that the Tyrells were sort of just hanging around saying, oh yeah, we're going to cut you off, we're going to cut you off and get you married. And all that time I'm thinking, it's something else is going to happen here because you're leaving it too long, you're leaving it too yeah, long. There's, it. there's this gap where something else can happen. And I for like this group that's supposed to be quite sort of sharp-witted, like especially the Queen Thorn, she's supposed to be this really sharp and sort mm. of canny operator. They seemed a little bit slower on the uptake and a little slow to move for me. Do, do they do they think that they need to wait till Marjorie is wed to Joffrey so they have the power to be able to do that without worrying about consequences from Lannisters? That's the only reason I can think for them to delay it. Yeah, possibly. I mean, that could be the case. I mean, it's I think it's getting her just somewhere away from King's Landing though. I mean, mm. there are a thousand and one reasons that she could have been sort of asked to be moved out of there or I don't know, I just think that there seems like there'd been another way to get around this. And it seemed that, yeah, that um, Tywin is the sort of person who would find another angle and find something else to do. So they'd have to be thinking a bit more than just saying, well, we'll just kick back and wait until uh, wait until the thing with Joffrey sorted out and then, then we'll move. And, I mean, as you've seen through all the stuff that happens in King's Landing, you've got to act so quickly and you've got to be so on the ball to actually make a bit of headway and it's those characters like Littlefinger who act on things quickly or are one mm. step ahead of everybody else that get things done So D- Dave is this is this an example of Queen of Thorns not as cunning and as, as great as she makes out she is because she, she's been outmanoeuvred here hasn't she? 
She has been, although I wonder whether this was a bit of a calculated retreat on her part. It may have been a thing where, because you know, I think I think you're right. They can't do anything until um, until uh, they've married Marjorie to Joffrey, because then they go from being these sort of wealthy but peripheral people like the Arryns to being at the very heart of the way that the place is run. And it may have been that they were like, yeah, we really want to claim on Winterfell, but the, the throne is more important. You know, kind of having having children who are having you know descendants who are royal is more important than that and so they mm. just maybe they were just sort of hoping it'd go through and if it doesn't they're like well you know we've lost mm. winterfell and gained king's landing so every cloud you know yeah so so this wedding is is dreadful uh for for sansa uh Tyrion d- does his best to sort of make her feel a bit better he's polite and he's very you know there's, there's a sort of quiet dignity to Tyrion here, even though, you know, he's being forced into this as well. I suppose there's this terrible moment actually where he, it, part of the ceremony is you you wrap your cloak around your bride, and he's too small to do it. And mm. when Sansa feels him sort of tugging at her dress to get her to kneel down, she sort of just ignores him because um, she feels, you know, why should I? Or should I be nice to this guy? You know, this is the worst day of my life. Which you can, yeah. you can kind of, you can understand, but it doesn't doesn't help Tyrion's, and everyone starts laughing at him. Yeah, um, I mean, there's there's the wedding reception where uh, Sansa's now being shunned by all the Tyrells. None of them are really talking to. Her. I think Sagalan, who's the el- who's the second eldest, ends up dancing with her at one point. And again, it's just another example of how sad it is because she's this is the sort of the kind of person she dreamed of marrying, and it's just. This is as close as she's ever going to get now. It feels um, is just having a dance with one of these guys who's very nice to her and comforts her, um, but at the same time, there's only so much you can do, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, and um, this was a really weird sort of vibe as well. This character vibe because I, I sort of felt like this is this is not the first time we've had POV characters directly interact but this is the first time for a long time isn't it so you're used to mm. POV characters really caring about them having one person to root for and it's the person you're seeing it through their eyes mm. and and these are two quite sympathetic POV characters as well so you sort of want them to get along and the fact that they're not kind of I think is a really really kind of ballsy choice because it means that you have to enjoy you have to kind of you have to appreciate the like the complexities of their character and stuff, um, yeah. And kind of and, and sort of see how it plays out. It's excruciating for Tyrion and excruciating for Sansa, and you just yeah. want them to team up. You want them to be good for one another, and yeah. um, and actually, you you see their flaws a lot better in 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 each other's light. I think it's quite interesting. Yeah. One person who is having a good time at the reception is Joffrey. He can't get enough of sort of poking fun at them and and just just ramping up the torment as much as he can. Um, And in the end, Tyrion snaps and says, he basically threatens to geld Joffrey um, as as Joffrey's trying to get the bedding started, I think. And and it's sort of it's a moment where he makes the threat and everything stops and everyone's like shit did he really say that <laughs> yeah and he, he he manages to sort of get out of it by pretending it was a joke but yeah. i think there's nobody there in any sort of uh, in any sort of misconception about this everyone realizes that i think he really did just threaten the king there 
I tell um, you what's interesting about this for me is this is I mean this is also this is beautiful because I just love these these occasional scenes where Tyrion just absolutely pones Joffrey and they happen about once every third of a book and they're, they're just great um, but also how many more times can Joffrey be shown to be a pathetic and petulant individual and be surrounded mm. by all of these extremely powerful knights and not have that have any consequences. You know what I mean? Everybody in the room knows here that somebody who's basically below his waist has threatened to cut his knob off and has got away with it in the same way as Joffrey abandoned the defence of the city, was given a shit job to do in the Battle of the Blackwater and then abandoned the defence of the city. Um, you know what I mean? Like how, how, like he's, and he's done nothing to be impressive to anybody, never mind to the people in Flea Bottom, but even to the knights around him. They must all look at him and go, I mean, I've fought for some wrong-uns in my time, but you, you know, like how long is this going to go on without having consequences? Well, I think that's just, that's just the, the drawback of the system, isn't it? It's because everyone knows what he's like, but nobody talks about it or lets that influence what they do because of who he is, because he's the king. And that's the major drawback of this of this kind of system isn't it yeah but i mean but we've seen that i mean kingship is supposed to be for life and it's supposed to be passed on to your to your um children and your children's children so it doesn't seem to happen very often You've got five mm. kings at the moment all claiming some sort of legal claim on that basis um yeah. and so uh so i actually think he's in a lot more danger than that might imply you know i think i think this could go wrong now, the the chapter ends in the bedchamber. Um, Tyrion and Sansa. This is this gets a lot more close to. I mean, the, these two get a lot more closer to ended up in bed together uh, than it happens in the series. Tyrion in the series pretty much straight away says, "You know, um, we're not going to do this." He gets as far as Tyrion's pretty much naked in bed with her before he decides not to not to go through with it. Yeah, and. I mean, this is this is difficult because Sansa's age in the book is sort of. I think she says she's twelve or thirteen, yeah. and um, the only way I can even really get through reading this book really is I always imagine her as about seventeen, eighteen, yeah. um, sort of on the cusp of, of, of you know of being eighteen. Yeah, and um, it's very disturbing, isn't it? Especially because I mean, you have to take into account the different sort of. Uh, the different standards of the time, if you like, in medieval England, it wasn't uncommon for for children effectively to be married, yeah. um, with all, with all that entailed um, at this age. But it's it's just very hard to read, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really is. And um, I mean, I don't know. Do you think reading this? Did you do you think George Martin sort of really wanted to write that they slept together? Not necessarily, you know. But sort of, um, but have it happen, and then realise there's no way you could have Tyrion be a sympathetic POV character after that. Ah, so so so, so the plot sort of suggested that demanded it, but the character development demanded it didn't happen. So he's he's tried to he's tried to find a a middle ground. I reckon so. Yeah. Um, yeah, possibly. Because yeah. I I definitely they neither of them came out of this looking terribly good. Mm. Um. Um, he he yeah. says we're we're not, we're not going to do this until you you want it to happen, yeah. and she says, "Well, if I never want it to happen," he, and he says, "That's what whores are for," which is obviously 
Yeah. Direct reference to Shay. Do you know what? Sorry, it's just occurred to me. There's something really interesting here. Is this the first time Tyrion's been in bed with somebody that he's obliged to show honour to? Like, he's either he's either always slept with prostitutes, uh, who would he, he's just, you know, bought their time and, and they're just prostitutes and he knows what they're there for and he'll leave. Or with women he's, like, head over heels in love with. And, like... Mm and like absolutely sold out to in a way which has generally turned out to be quite unhealthy for him um this is the first time where he's like he's kind of like i don't want to be here but i have to be here and you deserve my respect in this moment and it's almost like he's trying whilst naked he's trying to work out how to be a gentleman and i think that's quite interesting actually yeah um, i mean i Actually, in the series, uh, he says one of my favourite lines, um, which isn't in the book, and it's uh, it's, it's, it's this when he when he when he says, you know, "We're not going to do this when you're ready," and she says, "What if I'm never ready?" And in the series, he sort of drunkenly sort of staggers against the table, like smiles, and just says, "And now my watch begins," like in the same <laughs> words as the the Night's Watch. Yeah. So that was a great little line, and it was a good inclusion in the series. Although, shame it was, you know, that George didn't stick it in the book. Yeah, um, that's true. Should we, should we move on to Arya? We've, uh, we've got a, we're going to be running just over an hour at the moment. Um, yeah. So Arya is at this place called Stony Sept, and Harwin tells her a story about back in the day, her um, her dad fought in a big during, during the rebellion. Um, Robert, who became the king, was wounded there, and he was recovering, and a sort of Targaryen army came to the walls and, and tried to find him and kill him mm. and the bells started to toll when it, when the fighting began and Robert sort of even though he was wounded sort of jumped out of bed and ran up to join the fighting and slew a lot of people <laughs> it's just it, again it's just a, a little memory of just how great this guy was in his prime and how sad it was that it was all gone by the time we came to actually get to know him yeah yeah, it's true. He was. Ju- he's just basically been sort of a belligerent fart on legs, hasn't he? Until he died in the first book. Um, whereas, yeah, once he was a hero, once he was he was a freedom fighter. Really interesting. Uh, so this this place now it's obviously still being ravaged by war. This the, the new war now. There are there's this character called the Huntsman who apparently is this just guy who owns a load of dogs and goes out looking for. Um, people who are ravaging the lands. I think he's, he's semi-allied to Beric Dondarrion's group, isn't he? But not directly, I think. Yeah. And there are these, there are these Stark men who are being tortured in crow cages, which are these little cages that you get stuffed into, and you can't stand up, and you're sort of exposed to the sun all day, and crows can sort of peck you through the bars. Horrible way to go. Mm. I think these guys are car Starks again. Because they came after the Kingslayer and they were raping and pillaging as they went. Yeah. I think we're supposed to be led to believe that these are again the remains of the Karstark men who went out looking for for Jamie Lannister. And it becomes harder and harder for me to to stick with the uh, with the Stark army and kind of be a, a Stark supporter at this point. Because uh, you've been you've been for you know several several books now, well book and a half, whatever. Now you've been pointing out that there's no there's no good side in a war like this and everybody's doing horrendous things and there's still while I agree with that there's still a bit of me that's like kind of no but come on Starks North <laughs> they're, they're the goodies aren't they but you know there's something about this what happened why these mm. guys had this happen to them um, 
that I was like kind of ah oh, yeah you know a plague on both your houses screw it yeah Aya does offer some mercy she she gets some water and and, and gives it to these these dying men and and Angie the arch actually kills them sort of out of mercy as mm. well and actually the the people in the village don't want him to do it they want them to suffer more it just shows how brutal people get during war doesn't it yeah um that's one of the things i really like about this book how um how well it paints pictures about about warfare medieval warfare specifically yeah, yeah. um ollie what do you think about the, sort of the, the color that it adds to that these kind of little details which you can continuously keep coming across they're horrific but i suppose they, you think they're necessary yeah, definitely. I think I really like like what you were saying before about how it shows all of the sides in these warfares as not being particularly sort of groups that you could sort of get behind and root for. Because I think a lot of the time, if you like, obviously if you're brought up in England, you've done some sort of medieval history through school and whatnot. And it's all these tales of great knights. And obviously there's a lot more of this reflection on things that have happened on both sides. But I think it makes it really real and it really shows you that sort of this group that you really sort of been rooting for the whole time the Starks, like you say, they've got within their, within their group, there are murderers there are rapists, there are all sorts of undesirables within that and then, like you say, the reaction that the sort of the small folk have to that is one of that really reactionary thing and I mean, even you see it in modern day sort of western cultures and other cultures that if the sort of the, sort of the ordinary person, if they feel that they're wronged by somebody, they can sometimes when it's in times of hardship and when it's in times of sort of less affable and less sort of uh, productive times you can have this real sort of almost medieval reaction and a real sort of fire and brimstone attitude and wanting to sort of hang the murderers and these sort of things it's not something that you don't even see now so I imagine that in a time when there is this great it's a horrible a really difficult existence as being one of the small folk you can imagine that yeah there would be this reaction from the people and they would want to see those people that had done suffering onto them suffer themselves and mm. sort of the old eye for an eye sort of argument. So yeah. yeah, I think it really adds a lot of colour to that. Really holds true, doesn't it? Um, they go to this brothel in Stony Sept and the the owner of the brothel, Dave, can I get your thoughts on this? The owner of the brothel is called Tansy and has been, she's been the owner for years, it seems. And in when... when uh, Catelyn's dad was dying. Mm. He was he, he kept saying this name Tansy mm. and saying I'm so sorry. And we we assumed it was a pet name for Lysa Tully. Yeah. Maybe it's not I I thought it's not in, it's not impossible to imagine that it could be this Tansy because she's like a prominent owner of a whorehouse in one of the key towns in this guy's lordship she just happens to be called tansy in his area mm. i don't know what do you think <clears throat> could there be a connection there there certainly could be what the connection might be i'm not sure but you're definitely right to ask the question um uh, i mean is there is there some weird sort of family vibe going to happen because there is a bit actually later on in this um in this chapter isn't there where it's quite clear that like um gendry and um, and this girl in the place who, who was fathered by Robert as well. Oh yeah, might end Bella. up sleep. Yeah. yeah, called Bella might end up sleeping together. And you're just like, ah, it's horrible. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> so is there that sort of that sort of an, an undercurrent somehow? Like Tansy, yeah. you know, is is I mean, is might she be one of um, uh, what's his name? Hostetelli, is it? 
Yeah, um, yeah. One of Hostatelli's bastards herself, perhaps. I mean, we don't really know how old she yeah. is, but Hostatelli's yeah. old, so. Yeah. Um, so they do stay the night. So it's it's this this group, Aya, and the group of uh, Brotherhood Without Banners members. Merry men. Yeah, merry men. <laughs> stay, in, um, stay in this brothel overnight. In the morning, the, the mad huntsman returns with all these dogs and a new prisoner. It's a Lannister prisoner, and Arya recognises him, but we don't get to know who it is. But she she says her prayers were answered after all, so we assume it might be one of the people she prays about. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, but I don't think it's Jamie. I think we, we're led to believe that far. I don't think it's either, because, I mean, hang on, actually, I mean, isn't it the next chapter we see where Jamie is and it's not the same place? Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you're right there. It's not Jamie. Um, but... Um, uh, I went back and had a look at the list, and I thought it might might it be like the mountain or the hound. Like I was kind of reading those people that she really hates. Some of them are clearly not there, and some of them are already dead, and she doesn't know it. But the mountain mm. and the hound are still at large. Could easily be one of them. Could be. Um, next up's John. We're actually climbing the wall, uh, or he's not just yet. Jarl is going up there with th- three teams basically of wildlings. So we're gonna try and climb this what's the most extreme climb you'll ever see um it's basically trying to climb a wall of ice with nothing but sort of some sort of homemade crampons and some uh, and uh, some uh, sort of i don't know some big picks and things like that um and as they're going up these three teams john's watching them and he thinks to himself the others take them he curses them quietly yeah. Um, and he, he'll be glad if they, if none of them make it over. And I just thought that was quite interesting that for all the sort of sexy time he's been having with uh, with Egret, <laughs> you know, and all, but all let me see all that developing relationship with Egret. Mm. Um, he's still, you know, very firmly on the side of the Night's Watch, isn't he? It's not all sort of been. He's not a man's raider. It's not all been washed away, and he's suddenly decided to join the Wildlings because of the love of a good woman, you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's true. Uh, he's uh, he's really conflicted, and I do like it. I mean, I think I suppose if you like John less, it could be a bit tiresome that he keeps having this argument in his head because he just keeps restating his problem because it hasn't gone away. But I actually really like it. I really feel it. You know, like from childhood's earliest, he hasn't really known who he is, and then he's gone and taken these vows and taken on a brotherhood and had an identity and then betrayed that. But hasn't really betrayed that, but kind of has betrayed that, and he just doesn't know who he is. Um, very powerful stuff. For, for for all sort of, John hates the wildlings. I think he has to admire, and I think we do as well. Just the bravery of going up against this wall. I mean, this is an unbelievably dangerous thing to do. Um, Ollie, how did you feel about the the actual wildlings at this point? I think they're really interesting because. Like you say, and like you said in previous podcasts earlier on in the series, at the very first book, they're sort of just this, these sort of savages that are north of the wall that we don't really know much about. But the more time that John spends with them, and the more time that he spends with characters like um, Thomond and like Mantraider and like Egret, these are people that you get to see this other side to them. This real personality comes out, and like you said, this deeper sort of this wildling culture almost, and. It's something that you kind of think, compared to a lot of the other places in Westeros, it's kind of something quite appealing about it, and something you kind of think, yeah, they've they might not have everything right. There's a few things where you think oh, that's a bit that's a bit off, uh, <laughs> but quite a lot of it you can look at and you hear what they say and you see what they do and you think, 
I kind of dis- rather other than living north of the wall, it sounds like quite a good deal. So if mm. they were down somewhere like somewhere sunny, somewhere sort of Mediterranean <laughs> climate, a bit coastal. <laughs> I wouldn't mind being part of it. But I think the whole being north of the wall thing. So I think I'm a bit more conflicted with John by this point because I really like um, the Night's Watch. I really like all that, the sort of the whole camaraderie and thing that they've got going on up there. But essentially, it's a group of wildlings who you don't know too much about, but sort of have a few things that you admire. And then this band of men who, uh, some of them very noble and brave and fighters. But they're also made up of murderers, rapists, and all these other people as well that aren't the nicest sort of bloke. So I kind of think, well, the wildlings are just trying to get south because there is this other threat. There's this other presence that they're trying to get away from. Mm. And you kind of think, well, in some ways, I want them to get there. And I want them to sort of find their own little bit of salvation, their own little place where they're going to be able to keep going with what they're doing. But the more that you look at the map, there doesn't really seem to be that place. You don't yeah. know where they're going to find that, and it means that either they need to kill the people who are south of the wall, or they're going to get killed, and I think that's a real sort of conflict that comes up there. Yeah. Yeah, okay. The So, only two of these teams make it to the top of the wall. One of them, actually, led by Jarl, so the, so the, the most experienced team, all get killed because there's basically this massive crack in the wall appears, and half of you know a big chunk of it falls away with everybody on it, mm. and they come across Jarl who's sort of impaled on a tree and he's dead, um, and it just shows again how dangerous this is. It's quite cleverly done that once the, those two groups make it up there, they then drop ladders down mm. to allow the others to climb up, to to allow everybody else to climb up. And I thought that made more sense than in the series where sort of John, who's never tried to climb the wall before, just does it. <laughs> with egrets and um, you know it just felt a bit like it was so unlikely that any of them would make it up there yeah and I tell you what as well I really felt it in the book in a way I didn't in the TV series even though the TV series was you know all swoopy cameras and you know there's ice and chunks fall away and stuff um, I really felt it in the book much more because just to see it happen almost as like a spectator sport like the bloodiest spectator sport imaginable on this enormous Seven foot high, seven hundred foot high screen, almost to sort of put it in those terms. Mm. Um, it was so dramatic, and I felt it. I got quite bored in the TV series of it, to be honest. <laughs> Honestly, I did. Yeah. I was like, sort of, yeah, you're climbing. Either you're going to fall or you're not. And because there's a protagonist on the wall, I'm fairly certain you're not. So let's uh, let's move quickly, shall we? Um, whereas this, I was, I really felt the danger much more. And you're right, it's much more realistic to have people who know what they're doing throw down ropes than it is to have John turn up and be like, 700 foot ice wall, is it? Not a problem, not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking that with the um, with the ladders that come down, I was thinking maybe you spoke a bit too soon before about not being able to get the direwolf over. Maybe they could have had some sort of winch and pulley system. <laughs> and sort of like, all got behind it, got the direwolf up on top of the wall as well. So. <laughs> I don't know if John quite knew about that before they all set off on that front. <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> Possible. I love the idea of like a dog lift or something, just to sort of... <laughs> and when they get to the top of the wall, um, Egret ends up crying... Um, and she says it's because they didn't find the Horn of Winter, which was this mythical uh, piece of kit, which, if you blow it, would bring down the wall. And that's what they were doing up at the top of the milk water up in the mountains and the frost fangs, was trying to find this 
this killer piece of kit and they didn't do it and as again I suppose that's I mean it's bad news for the wildlings and good news for the Night's Watch isn't it yeah but I tell you what the big thing was about this it was we opened half a hundred graves and let all those shades loose in the world and never found the Horn of Juraman to bring this cold thing down. Is it them? Am I wrong? The, the, these cold things, they're not the old gods. They're just fucking, they are zombies, which have been ah. let loose by people being stupid and acquisitive enough to go digging up graves looking for treasure. Like I thought that was, like, this is huge. This like turns the whole thing on its head. Is it the wildling's fault? that these others are stomping around anyway. Ah, interesting point. The question, the problem is with, I mean, I think that's a very, um, very solid theory. Um, but if that is true, how were they all, to, what what brought them all together? Because I thought the reason all the wild uh, things came together was because of the threat from the others. But they all came together before they went to the Frostfangs. Or maybe, maybe the timeline adds up slightly differently. But I think it's a good show. I think there are two really strong theories that you've put forward Dave um, over the last few weeks and one of them being the others are the old gods which is entirely possible and one of them being they're just these ghosts that were let loose by the wildlings by accident and you know either one or neither I suppose could be well, could I be tell you what maybe it's a bit of both maybe it's you know they're coming they're coming anyway and then you know, and then they, the wildlings go and raid these graves, and all this shit starts coming out. Egret thinks they've let them loose, and actually they were going to come loose anyway because it's just sort of it's that time again. You know, hmm. um, maybe, maybe it is a bit of both. But um, but I thought this was absolutely massive, and I was really excited because so far the others have been this sort of uh, you know like malevolent, sure, but you don't really know where they're from. You don't really know what they're trying to do. You just know that for two and a half books in a line, people have been going, "Oh, the others, they're wrongins, and no mistake." And you haven't really mm. had any kind of purchase on it, but just so this little window of where they might be from and what they might be about. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh, last chapter for today. Uh, Jamie, uh, he's alive. Hey. <laughs> Hooray! Uh, oh, yeah, are we happy about that? Well, are I don't know. I mean, he's, he's very attractive. So, um, yeah. No, yeah. I don't know. I don't More know why. More attractive Sorry? More attractive than Tyrion, you were sort of saying he was all oh, right. Oh, well, you, you know, Matt, you've got to look at somebody's personality, haven't you, if you're going for the long haul. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so he is alive. He's not got a hand anymore. So when that art, when that big sword came down last time we saw him, it wasn't to kill him, but it was to remove his sword oh, hand. Oh, it's massive, isn't it? Like, this is mm. his whole personality, basically, is his right hand. And it's gone. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. And he, he tries to fight at some point. He manages to grab a sword, but he's got to fight with his, his bad hand and he's obviously exhausted. And he can't even catch. They've got a fool travelling with them and called Shagwell and he's just sort of dancing around him and Jamie can't even kill him. Yeah. And it just shows how bad things have got for Jamie, doesn't it? It does. And um, this is interesting because, I don't know, I had a sense in the TV series when he does this of him being more in control of it and being like being a proper serious world-beating badass with his right hand but no slouch with his left whereas here he's just shit with his left and his whole world has fallen apart now that he's lost his right hand yeah and it's interesting to compare that to Corin Halfhand who mm. 
learned to fight with his other hand because he lost yeah. half his hand <laughs> and, yeah. um, and and he did it yeah. and maybe given time Jamie will do it too but at the moment it seems that maybe he's a less of a resilient man than Corin was which I suppose is a high bar but still for someone who thought so highly of himself in terms of a warrior yeah. this is a big a big come down for Jamie and a, and a big uh, I don't know moment of truth I suppose mm-hmm. Ollie what, what did you make of him? Yeah I think well I think the difference between him and Corin Halfhand is that at the point where we meet Corin, he's obviously he must have lost lost half his hand at some point in the past, and then it is going to be take a bit of time to train yourself up. On the other hand, Jamie's still got this one bloody sort of pussing infected stump on his right on one side, yeah. hasn't he? And then he's got his other hand, and like you say, he's exhausted. He's been on the road. He's been captured for I mean I don't know how long at this point, but he's not in a good way, and it's kind of. I think if I was Jamie, I'd struggle to fight with eight hands. <laughs> so if you're down to like your one weaker hand, I think it would be in real sort of difficulty. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, it just, I think it adds this extra sort of layer of sympathy you have for Jamie because he's sort of been a really, at the start of the book, he's really dislike, you can really dislike him. He's a really sort of, not a very likable character. But the further you go along, you start to have a few more twangs of sympathy for him. And now by this point, he loses a hand and you kind of think, yeah, he's not that bad a guy, actually. He was, he was all right. I kind of wish he had it back again. <laughs> it's kind of, it's quite tough in that sense. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how he develops and if he can actually get back to the man that he was with his hand, or if it's going to be from now on. Yet yeah, he needs to take a different path, and mm. he's no longer a fighter. But that, there doesn't really seem much else for him. I well, suppose I, added to the not not so bad a guy is that he manages to he, he saves Brienne from getting raped as well. Um, these two horrible, these horrible creatures come over to to, to rape her, and uh, he shouts Sapphire as it brings over um, the leader of the group, and he sort of intervenes and, and stops Brienne getting getting raped. Dave, what do you think? Is Jamie the? Do you agree with this Jamie not such a bad guy uh, vibe that we're getting now? No, he's a dickhead, but <laughs> but. I do see how he could move towards being less of a bad person. And I tell you what it is, it's in one line where he says, this is how Tyrion must feel all the time when they're laughing at him. And that's Mm. so important because I hadn't really clocked, I'm just sort of used to assuming that any human character encounters humiliation and success at various points in their life. You know, that everybody, to whatever extent, understands what both, both those things are about. But of course, Jamie is the eldest son in the most powerful, most wealthy house in the land. He's astonishingly good-looking, and he's a real badass with a sword. So when has he ever experienced humiliation? And I just thought that was that's such a key to his whole character, and I'll be really mm. interested to see. I still think, like... I still think he's, he's... He could be going in that direction, but he is still a smarmy, violent man who shags his sister. <laughs> in um, in terms of like looking at Jamie though, like I kind of said, is he a bad guy? Is he not? Is it that he's not bad for a Lannister? Because if you put him <laughs> on a spectrum of the Lannisters now, where would you sort of put him? Because obviously, it seems to be that we seem to be thinking, oh, well, Tyrion's like the good Lannister, yeah. and you probably put Joffrey at the other end of the spectrum or Cersei. Whereabouts do you think that Jamie now fits on that? Is he more towards one side or the other, or not? Hmm. I think he's probably yeah I think he's probably closer to Tyrion than he is to 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 Joffrey but uh 
But yeah, I suppose it's yeah. not saying much, is it? Not bad for a <laughs> Not bad for a yeah. um, No, I tell you what, actually, I think. I think, I, I don't think we can really answer that question until we've seen what he's like around Cersei. If he ever mm. gets back there, you know, if we ever see that interaction. Um, mm. Because until that point, I, it seems clear to me that Cersei has this particular significance in his in his life and in his, his in his emotions. That and, and she's a horrible person. So somebody with that amount of influence over him being a horrible person is likely to mean he's still a horrible person. Mm. Um, against all of that, though, he stops Brienne getting raped. So fantastic. And he actually—he also has quite a good line with it as well, doesn't he? Where he's like, "Listen, I just wanted to hear him try and pronounce Thaphaeth." <laughs> yeah, yeah, this guy Vago Holtz, who can't speak. They get back. They get the prisoners back to Harrenhal, to Roose Bolton's crib, as it is now known, and. Um, <laughs> They get thrown down in front of Roose Bolton, who's sort of standing at the top of the steps, just looking down on everybody. And um, I just love this moment. Actually, it's about that Vargo Hulk guy, where there's this all this dialogue where every every person who speaks is sort of introduced or or mentioned by name, so you know who's talking. Mm. Apart from this one line, basically one of the phrases who's who's with Bolton says, "Who's this with Jamie Lannister?" And just this voice goes. Lannister Thwetnerth and it's obviously <laughs> it's obviously Vargo Hope and I, I'm, I just imagine it as on screen as like you've seen all these characters and then just off off screen you just hear this bloke go Lannister Thwetnerth <laughs> and you just immediately know who it is just because of his, his speech impediment which is quite an unusual character trait in this world isn't it um, yeah yeah Bolt, Bruce Bolton here is is so I, we just get another example of how I love it I love that reading about him because he's such a just such an interesting cold character, and this time sort of uh, Jamie makes some kind of uh, jape towards Roose Bolton about how he lost his you know that battle against Tywin Lannister and ran off with his tail between his legs, and Roose Bolton just sort of looks at him and doesn't say anything, and it's sort of that thing again of that the silence being more terrible than anything he could have said, and I think I think Jamie thinks uh, considers to himself. Roose Bolton's silence was far more menacing than all the sort of threats from Vargo Holtz. You know what I would quite like, right, is if Roose Bolton, we get a bit of backstory, and it turns out he was just an incredibly, like, sort of um, frightened kid who knew he was going to inherit a place called the Dread Fort and was like, right, Roose, you're not a badass, but you're going to have to pretend... And you hate shouting, so here it is. All you got to do when you become when you become the Lord, you just flay the skin off of the first three people who do the smallest thing wrong to cross you, and then whisper for the rest of your life, and they'll be so frightened of you. I love the idea of Bruce Bolton as a sensitive soul at heart. He <laughs> liked to read. And, uh, Excellent at cross loot. stitch. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's another bit with Bolton as well, where he he says about about the about Joffrey. He says to Jamie, uh, "Your," and then he pauses and then says, "nephew." And in the pause, it's blatantly obvious that he knows about the the rumours about Jamie and Cersei as well. He loves a significant pause, Rhys Bolton, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. He with does, your yeah. nephew. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you don't want to overplay your position <laughs> <laughs> and the, the last thing that happens here is Jamie gets operated on by Kyburn who's this 
uh, ex-maester who is dismissed for dodgy stuff. No knocking about Uri Spolson is the closest thing to a medic they've got. So he wants to operate on Jamie's hand. And Jamie doesn't accept milk of the poppy, which is basically morphine, uh, because he's he's afraid of of the, the of Kyburn taking more of his arm off. So he has to sort of go through this horrendous operation without any kind of sedative. And it oh, I was wincing as I was reading this. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is yes, wince worthy is exactly the word. <laughs> Yeah, and that's where we leave Jamie, and that's where we leave uh, the book for this this part. Um, I mean, it, there's a, a, a t- the thing that I took away from this this amount. There's a, there's a lot of death and a lot of gruesome stuff going on, even more so than we're used to in Game of Thrones. Did you enjoy it, Dave? Um, weirdly, yeah. Although I think that's just a function of Arya having a bit more plot and a few more connections being made, like Sansa and Tyrion being sort of interacting together, and um, this nugget of information about the um, about letting these shades loose north of the Wall, um, and uh, and people just seem to kind of interact with each other a lot more, and I like that because, like like I said, my yeah my my major criticism of the second book was just that you know it was it was six nine separate books about one character um very rarely interacting you know so um mm. so yeah i enjoyed it despite the fact like you say that it is so so flipping violent ollie thoughts yeah it was oh hello. yeah it's definitely the um the most romantic part of the game of thrones book isn't it we've got the lovely romance between john and egret you've got a wedding <laughs> Uh, we won't mention what happens though you know you've got the I mean it's a great ceremony Tyrion has a whale of a time doesn't he I mean yeah I mean in, in reality though it's a really grim read again isn't it there's horrible things happening all over Westeros and yeah more of the same please <laughs> <laughs> I suppose yeah you're right it is It is really about contrast this part of the book we've read isn't it you've got the you've got the, the, the complete difference between those sort of romantic elements and the horror as well which it really it is yeah and um, for next week, get ready for a fairly big chunk. We're doing the rest of the book. Read to the end. Yeah. I don't mean actually. Don't get too worried. I don't mean the rest of Storm of Swords complete. I mean re- the rest of Storm of Swords Part One: Steel and Snow. Hopefully, you've bought it in two books. So <laughs> we're not reading like hundreds of pages, but we are reading about 130 pages worth. So if if you do have the single volume. You will need a place to stop, I suppose, because mm. most of us have it in in two books. So read up to a chapter which begins. You see, I'm I'm reaching here. Um, <laughs> it's John. The last chapter of our book of Storm of Swords Part One is about John, which begins. The ground was littered with pine needles and blown leaves. When you get up to that chapter, read it, and then stop at the end of it. So it's slightly different instructions than last time. And um, that is what we'll cover next time. So strap yourself in because there's going to be a lot of stuff to get through next time and we're probably going to run pretty long again. Are you ready for it? I'm ready for it. I'm going to be limbered up. <laughs> Ollie, have you enjoyed your time on Shark Liver Oil? You've, uh, you've been a fantastic guest. Let me be the first and probably last unless Dave wants to jump in to say <laughs> so. Uh, actually, I agree. So, you know, there you <laughs> go. Two big ups. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, it's been a, it's been, 
a life-changing experience without a doubt yeah it's, it's been great yeah definitely thanks <laughs> right okay if you want to get um, involved in shark liver oil you can send us your feedback to shark liver oil podcast at gmail.com that's shark liver oil podcast at gmail.com um or don't sigh yet mate you're not done yet <laughs> he's just sort of stretched back did a big stretch oh, <sighs> you don't even know <laughs> I'm, I'm rounding this bad boy up now so you got to wait okay so yeah um, this is important stuff if you want to get involved you, you just go to sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com mm. or you can get us on twitter at sharkliveroyal and Dave's there looking after facebook as well you sorted that one out for us Dave yep yeah that's happening too. there's a facebook page there basically. is a facebook look for page. Shark Liver Oil podcast. <laughs> look for sharkliveroyal <laughs> alright um, th- um, is that? I mean, that's pretty much this. Pretty much is done. Us done for this time. Mm. But uh, enjoy reading the rest of Storm of Swords, Steel and Snow, which is a sort of book one, and uh, and we will be back next time to read the rest of it. Oh, it's going to be big. 